Thanks, David. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if you're here or even if you're listening online, you're very welcome. If you're visiting with us, you're especially welcome. And I really do hope that you feel at home in our church family and that you're blessed and refreshed as we worship God together. As far as the regulars are concerned, well, the, the welcome is just as warm. Thank you for being here. Let's hear some very important verses from John's Gospel to help us focus now on the Lord Jesus himself. This is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. There's no one like our Lord Jesus. And that's why we love to sing his praises, even with masks on. So let's stand and do that as we sing, Jesus is the name we honor. Now let's pray. Let's come before God now. Father in heaven, we come before you with reverence and in awe. You are God Almighty, the creator of everything, the embodiment and source of all that is holy, just, and good. We would be terrified to stand in your presence were it not for our Lord and Savior Jesus who has paid for our sins with his own life and has gifted us with forgiveness of our sins, enduring peace and joy by the Holy Spirit and the prospect of living forever as your children, part of your new creation. We're glad that the Apostle John was able to write that he had actually seen Jesus' glory. We have not had that privilege. And yet, Father, we can gladly and openly declare that we love him. No one else understands us, loves us, guides us the way he does. Thank you for the gift of your wonderful Son. Thank you, too, for your gracious Holy Spirit who lives in each one who has surrendered to Christ and put their trust in him. We confess that we are totally undeserving of this mercy and grace that you have lavished on us. Even this week we have demonstrated yet again our sinfulness and our readiness to wander from the path you've laid out for us. Forgive us, we pray, and renew that right spirit in us as we continue to worship you and listen for your voice. May your Holy Spirit have his way in us for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Now, we're delighted this morning to welcome Denny Fleming of InterServe to Kirkpatrick, and she's going to share a bit of what God is doing right now to bring light into darkened corners. Denny. Thank you, Denny, for your encouragement. We're going to sing again as we put Jesus front and center in our thoughts. 
and adjust our whole perspective to think on him. This song is called At Your Feet We Fall. Thank you. These past two weeks we've been reading in Acts about what was happening in Samaria and how the gospel has been spread beyond the original solely Jewish audience, even to the extent of reaching an Ethiopian official. But now we come back to the murderous persecution that had led to the stoning of Stephen. We're reading in Acts chapter 9. Meanwhile, Paul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind, did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias? Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's word. Now Paul is coming to speak to us. Thank you, Billy. Well, I want to begin this morning by introducing you to someone. And you'll see him on the screen here in a moment. His name is Celestine Musakura. And he's an ordained minister and the founder and director of an organization called ALARM, African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministries. I encountered this man 
when I, like some of you, I think, attended a virtual worship symposium at Calvin University earlier in the year. And as I was reading this story from the book of Acts again this week of Paul's dramatic conversion on the road to Damascus, my mind went back to this man, Mr. Cura, and his story of learning to forgive as the Lord has forgiven us. In 1997, he was at seminary in the United States when he received the tragic news that soldiers had attacked his village in Rwanda and had killed more than 70 people, including members of his immediate family. The massacre was just one example of the tribal violence that had begun in Rwanda in 1994 with the brutal genocide of around 800,000 people. And it was in the immediate aftermath of this horrific event that Musakura began the organization that would become Alarm. And his mission was to help Christians, many of whom were perpetrators of the violence, to seek reconciliation and to work for peace in Rwanda. But in 1997, when his own family became victims to the violence, well, Musakura found himself in need of hearing his own sermon is what he said to us. Forgiving those killers wasn't the first thing in my mind. I was angry, and I wondered who did it, and I asked, where was God? Maybe I didn't want to take a machete to kill them, but I wanted to take revenge in some form. You see, he understood in his head the value and necessity of forgiveness. It was the message he had been preaching to literally thousands of people over the years. But in his own moment of darkness and grief, it was not a message he felt in his heart. He talked partly about that inner conflict that engulfed him, how he wavered between seeking reconciliation and seeking revenge. But as painful as this struggle was, he finally came to realize that, in his words, I needed to take my own medicine. And he remembers praying, Lord, If I can, and you will give me the grace, I'll forgive them, even before I know who they are. Later, when he returned to Rwanda, he found himself face to face with young men who were close relatives of the men who had taken part in the killing. And even though he had resolved in that prayer to forgive, when the moment came, hatred for them And for those who did the actual killing, just coursed through him. But this hatred didn't overwhelm him for long. By the grace of God, he was able to choose another way. Listen to his words here, and especially to how he refers to those men who were his enemies. I knew, he says, they were my brothers in Christ. Even though it wasn't easy... I had to demonstrate what I believed, and I asked for their forgiveness for me hating them. These were not just mere words, because he went on to practice what he preached. He started to take some of the children's, the killer's children to school, and that relationship developed until he ended up caring for them as if they were his own children. It's an incredible story, isn't it? And I was reminded of this story of reconciliation and forgiveness within the body of Christ 
as I read again those words spoken by Ananias in verse 18. Brother Saul. You know, the story of Saul's conversion is so familiar to us that we're at risk of missing the power of these words. But imagine reading this whole story for the first time. Imagine if all you knew about Saul, whom we come to know as Paul, is what we've learned in this series and Acts so far. Because what have we learned about Saul? We've learned that he's been an enemy of the church. He was there at the murder of Ananias' friend and brother in Christ, Stephen. Saul was the one holding the coats of the men who stoned him to death. And then it's that same Saul who appears again, no longer on the sidelines this time, but taking a lead during that violent persecution in Jerusalem. Saul, as we read last week, rampages from house to house, hunting down followers of the way and throwing them into prison. He was on a mission to destroy Christ's church. And now, as Billy read for us at the beginning of Acts 9, we read that his mission continues. He's still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. And this time, he's even acquired official sanction for his murderous attempt from the chief priests themselves. And now he's hot on the heels of those Christians who have fled to Damascus. So do you get the power of Ananias' words here? Brother Saul. Brother Saul. You know, there's, there's so much that's important to talk about in this passage, but for me at least, it's these words that shine out most brightly because they brilliantly encapsulate the impact of the gospel. That though we were once strangers to God, in Christ we've been taken up in God's warm embrace. That though our past might make us enemies to one another, the grace of God unites us together in a shared future. But what is it that happens to enable this transformation of grace? How does this soul of Tarsus, this persecutor, changed so radically that on that, week long, on that week-long journey to Damascus, and how might we expect to experience this transformation in our own lives? Well, in answer to those questions, we need to look to this dramatic encounter between Saul and the risen Christ, don't we? Now, as I said, this is a very familiar story, however. So, what I'm going to do in this sermon is I'm going to try to make this a little bit unfamiliar to you. Because there are a couple of things I discovered in my reading this week that, well, they disrupt the conventional reading of this story just a little bit. More specifically, I want to put a light, a, a, sort of a light question mark, if you will, if you let me, a light question mark on two words that we popularly associate with this narrative. And the first of these is conversion. Now bear with me for this one. The conversion of Saul. Luke tells us that this encounter began with a blinding light. I don't know if you noticed, but the light suddenly shone through the window as Billy raised those words, or read those words, at least it did for me. And, and this light caused Saul, as we read, to fall flat face on the ground. Now, if we think back to the Hebrew Bible, this detail becomes very significant because it points back to all those other moments of God's revelation to his prophets in the Old Testament. There are several we could mention, but perhaps it's most significant to mention the prophet Ezekiel. You see, if you know the book of Ezekiel, you might know in the first chapter of that book, 
Well, the prophet describes this very weird and wonderful vision of God. And it begins with a brilliant light. And it ends with Ezekiel recording these words for us, which you'll see on the screen. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. When I saw it, I fell face down. And I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, the interesting thing I discovered in my reading this week is that it was a very common practice in Saul's day for pious Jews to use this chapter from Ezekiel as a tool for prayer. The idea was that they would meditate on Ezekiel's vision and journey through it in their imagination. And and this often would have happened as they went on a physical journey. Now, we can't know this for sure. It's just an educated guess, but scholars such as Tom Wright have suggested that given Paul's education and training, well, it's very likely that he would have practiced this sort of meditative approach to Ezekiel 1. And therefore, it's not too outlandish to think that he might have been doing just that as he made that week-long trek to Damascus. So imagine with me for a moment. Imagine that Saul is contemplating this vision from Ezekiel. And as he works through the different stages of this vision in his mind, as he gets ever closer to that moment when Ezekiel falls face on the ground and hears the voice of one speaking, it's then Paul, or Saul we should say, finds himself flat out on the ground. Not because of some vision of God, but because he encounters the living God in the flesh. Now imagine his shock then when he hears the words that come from the Lord. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Persecute me? In Saul's mind, he had been defending the Lord, not persecuting him. He'd been acting in faith, not obedient, disobedience. And the words he utters in reply, well, they display this absolute bewilderment, don't they? Who are you, Lord? And the Lord replies to him with words that must have been too painful for Paul to hear. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Talk about being cut to the heart. Talk about being undone. If Paul had not found himself on the floor already, this revelation would have floored him. But in this encounter, Saul is forced to concede that his certainty has led him into sin. I mean, Saul was steeped in his tradition. He knew the scriptures back to front. He was an expert in the law. And yet for all his learning, he missed the Messiah. In fact, his theological certainty and his nationalistic zeal made him unable to see the one he believed to be an imposter, who he believed to be a pseudo-Messiah, a poison that needed to be purged from Israel. And he failed to see that this was in fact Israel's true Messiah, the Son of God, and the one through whom the promises of God would be fulfilled. That's why we need to be careful when we just call this the conversion of Saul. Yes, there's a clear conversion here. Saul accepts the truth of the gospel. He repents and he receives forgiveness for his sins. But he's not converted to a new religion. He's not converted from unbelief to belief. That's why I think we need to supplement this word with some others like transformation and calling. 
Because like those prophets of old, like Ezekiel, this divine encounter for Saul transforms his thinking and calls him into a special mission. Friends, I think we must always be open to this sort of transformation in our thinking. We must beware the theological pride that Saul fell into, remembering always the need to be humble and expectant before the risen Christ. Because the life of faith is a journey, a journey of continual transformation and renewal of heart and of mind as the Spirit conforms us more and more into Jesus' likeness. So conversion. And then's the second word I want to disrupt a little for you. And this one I can be a little bit bolder with my question mark. Sudden. You know, the phrase Damascus Road conversion has entered into popular parlance, hasn't it? As a shorthand for a sudden change of mind. But you know, I don't think that entirely holds up against what Luke actually tells us here. Dramatic, yes, but sudden, I'm not so sure. In fact, what we see here indicates, I think, a slow process of transformation. First of all, if we think about what happens after this encounter, we have those three days of blindness. We don't know what's going on in Saul's head in that time, but we know it must have been important. A crucial time for Saul to process all that has just happened. And beyond that, we know from Paul's writing in Galatians, which you'll see on the screen here, is that Paul removed himself for a time to Arabia. He took himself off. He he didn't go straight to Damascus. There was a time in between where he had to go and figure things out. Now Luke, for the purposes of Acts, condenses this narrative for us. But it's clear from Paul that there was this longer process of working things out. I mean, as we alluded to earlier, he had a lot of theology to rework, didn't he? A lot of scripture to read anew. And interestingly, there's also a hint in Acts itself that this process might have actually begun before the road to Damascus. You see, this this narrative is actually repeated three times in Acts. And if we turn the pages to Acts 26, where we get the third mention of this narrative, we discover that Christ spoke another sentence to Paul that's not recorded here in Acts 9. You'll see it on the screen here. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And then... It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, you'll know the expression to to goad someone along, but maybe you don't know what a goad is. Well, it's a sharp stick that shepherds would use to herd sheep. And so if Paul has been kicking against the goads, well, well, that implies that there have been goads there, doesn't it? That implies that the Spirit has been poking at Saul for some time, and he's been resisting. Perhaps even as he was rampaging about with that murderous intent, beneath the surface, the spirit was at work, slowly dismantling Saul's certainty. Few of us have had a dramatic experience like that of Saul on the road to Damascus, but I think most of us have experienced that feeling of kicking against the goads. All of us at one time or another, have found ourselves resisting God's call on our lives. Maybe you've been resisting that call for quite some time now. Maybe you've been coming along to church or you've been joining us online and you've felt unsettled 
by this Jesus, unsettled by what you've heard, but you've not yet made a decision to follow him. Today, Christ wants you, me, all of us, to stop resisting. He wants us to stop telling ourselves that we are self-sufficient, that we can go it alone, that it's for us to carry the weight of the world on our shoulders. It isn't. Instead, Jesus invites us, like Saul, to confess our need for him, to lay down our burdens and play our part in his work of grace in this world. That work of transformation is not always sudden. Sometimes it can be slow, but thank God that he is patient with us. So we've taken a fresh look at this familiar story, and we've suggested that reading this as a sudden conversion does not fully grasp the miracle of grace that took place on that road to Damascus. And it's this word grace that I want to bring you back to as we close. Because that's what this story is ultimately about, isn't it? It's not about Paul. It's not about Ananias. It's about the grace of God at work on the ground. I mean, it's, grace is the only way that I can actually make sense of this passage. This dramatic conversion of the persecutor of the church, it only makes sense in light of grace. And that's because it's God's grace alone that makes sense of that kingdom logic we talked about last week. Do you remember? The logic that compelled the man I introduced you to at the start to call his enemies brothers in Christ. The logic that compelled Ananias to call his persecutor brother Saul. The logic that results in this thing we call church. Where people of all sorts of backgrounds, carrying all sorts of burdens, harboring all sorts of grief and guilt, can come and find forgiveness and fellowship and family. It's grace that makes this kingdom logic work. Now, of course, if we're honest, that kingdom logic has not always been at work in this part of our world. In our divided society, we in the church have been at times too complicit in seeing our neighbor as our enemy rather than as our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why I thought this week's service of reflection and hope at St. Patrick's Church of Ireland Cathedral in Armagh was so encouraging. There we had the leaders of our four main churches on this island gathered to celebrate the liberation and transformation that can come only from the grace of God. I don't know if you managed to listen to the sermon at that event called, I Bring You Good News. It was preached by the president of the Methodist Church in Ireland, Reverend Sar Yambasu. In very powerful words, he reminded us how the patron saint of this island, Patrick, well, he demonstrated that same willingness as Ananias and Celestine Misakara to look on former enemies with grace. Here's what he said. Patrick had every reason to hate the Irish and seek for vengeance, but he didn't. Instead, he forgave and was forgiven. And consequently, the history of this place could be summarized in one word. Grace. Unmerited concern for the good of the other. And he goes on. 
For us Christians, grace is a gift. That gift is a person. Jesus Christ is his name. He is the gift of God to St. Patrick. It is that gift that made him return to Ireland, not to hold the past against the people of Ireland, but to hold before them the possibility of a mutually enhanced future. A future devoid of recriminations and unjust relationships, and a future imbued with and infused by grace. Friends, this is the grace that Saul discovered on the road. And it's the grace that God offers to you today. So don't kick against the goads. Let down your guard and let Christ invite you into his future, imbued with and infused by grace. Amen. We're going to sing now. Um, I wonder, can we sing only by grace? Can we enter? Have we, yeah, instead of Jesus? That'd be great. Let's stand and sing together. have a few announcements I need to remind you of this morning. <clears throat> Firstly, there are more empty shoe boxes at the front, just waiting for you to take away and fill as a Christmas gift for some children who don't enjoy the opportunities or affluence that we are blessed with. Uh, there are expandary leaflets there also to help you as you purchase your gifts for the shoe box appeal. Please remember that the filled boxes are to be returned on or before Sunday, November the 14th. That's our deadline. Second announcement concerns men only. It's not often you get away with saying that nowadays. Sure it isn't. Uh, but on Saturday, 13th of November, a Kirkpatrick men's event will be held in the Forbes Hall from 3 o'clock to 5.30 in the afternoon when we will gather to watch and cheer on Ireland's glorious rugby team as they take on some crowd from New Zealand calling themselves All Blacks. Please book in advance through Church Suite for that. And finally, this was an announcement that Gareth was to make this morning. Unfortunately, COVID has raised its ugly head again with the Erwin household, so I'm doing it in his stead. You are all aware by this stage that the Reverend Graham Kennedy is coming to preach as our potential new minister on Sunday, the 7th of November. Immediately following the three services, two in the morning and one at night, we as a congregation have the opportunity to vote on whether or not to confirm Graham's call to Kirkpatrick. Robert, our vacancy convener, has conveyed the following information as to the process involved, and I quote, Given concerns over rising COVID infections and the possibility that current regulations on social distancing might restrict the number of voting members able to attend the forthcoming congregational meeting, the Vacancy Commission, in consultation with the Kirk Session, has approved a postal vote to decide on the call of a new minister. This will mean that a congregational meeting is no longer necessary. However, each voting member will be issued with a ballot paper after hearing Graham Kennedy, and these should be returned by post to the conveyor to the convener of the vacancy by 4 p.m. 
on Thursday the 11th of November. The Vacancy Commission will meet that evening to count the votes cast. More detailed information will be available next week and voting instructions will also be included with the ballot papers. That's the end of the announcement. Now comes a time in the service that uh, I must say strikes a chord with me most. This is when we gather as a church family to pray together, uh, bring to God the things that are on our hearts. I have the privilege of leading you. It is a privilege. I recognize that. But because I'm doing that, it's generalized, okay? Only you know the people who are on your heart. So as we go through this prayer, I want you to pray with me. And where there are people that really are in your mind when we come to a certain part, or things that are happening, please include those in your prayers. Let's all pray together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we open our hearts to you now, eager to bring to you people and situations that we care about and know that you can bless powerfully. We also want to express our thanks to you for answers to past prayers. Thank you for leading us so clearly in our search for a new minister. We pray now that you will help Graham as he prepares to address us in a couple of weeks' time. Confirm to him your call and prepare our hearts to listen and know your will. We are constantly grateful for your care and protection in the face of this present pandemic. Truly, your grace and mercy are never failing, and so with confidence, we pray that our whole health and social care system will be able to cope with the expected winter pressures. Bless all those who work so tirelessly in our hospitals, care homes, and doctor's surgeries. And we ask this especially for our brothers and sisters belonging to our church family who find themselves on the front line. Just as we pray this, Father, we are uncomfortably aware that many poorer countries, especially in Africa, are unable to benefit from vaccines and effective care for the many who are struggling with COVID infection. Our prayer is that you will motivate our government, along with others, to channel funds and resources to help these needy nations. We want to pause and lift up before you all our friends and church family members who are ill or undergoing treatment at this time. Strengthen them. Encourage them. Heal them. But most of all, assure them of your constant love surrounding them every minute of the day. For our friends who are struggling with financial worries, maybe facing dark doubts about their future employment, we pray for your peace, protection, and provision. There is so much in this world that is uncertain, but this one thing we're absolutely sure of, you never change. You remain faithful, truthful, just, and kind. Your love is never in doubt, and your will is good and perfect. Help us simply to trust where we cannot see, to follow wherever you lead, and to remember to thank you in it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Everything changed for Saul when he heard the name of Jesus in a whole new way. And it's the same for us. He's no longer just a remarkably good man or a famous ancient teacher 
Maybe even a throwaway swear word? No. When God the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and hearts to Jesus, he becomes simply beautiful. And that's why our last song is, Jesus, what a beautiful. Some words and benediction from Jude, verse 24. To him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.